Welcome back, everybody. Signs and Wonders, Part 2. In our previous class, we talked about a number of different geographic locations that should inspire a sense of amazement, wonderment, a sense of gratitude. Encountering places like this should necessarily make us remember historic episodes, miracles that unfolded for our people. And we went through details of some of the seemingly cryptic references in the Talmudic narrative. Today we're going to continue looking at those different geographic locations and trying to understand what it is that motivates the Gemara to come to this conclusion. Did you know that Moses had a war room that was kind of outdoors on a mountain summit? Did you know that in the first battle ever fought by the Jewish people, Moses was directing things from a large boulder that he sat on? Well, not only should you know about this, but apparently, for a long time, we knew where this stone was. And when you encountered the stone, you had the religious duty to recite a bracha and acknowledge Hashem's kindness and Hashem's miracles. And that's what we learned in the Braisa. Evan sheyashav aleha mesha. If you encounter the stone that Moses sat on. Now we're on page 54, side 2. This is the, the Gemara moving its way through these locations. And the Gemara now is going to begin to examine this. What did the Brisa mean when it spoke of the Evan Sheyashav Alav Moshe? So the Gemara begins first by sourcing the specifics. Dixiv. We know that something happened here because it states so openly in the scripture. These are verses that are found in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. It concludes Parshat B'Shalach. And it says that when Amalek attacked the Jewish people, Moses and Aaron ascended to the mountain summit. And then it says that when Moses' hands were raised, the Jewish people were able to overpower their enemies. However, when Moses folded his hands, the enemy was able to surge and achieve success. And we are told, V'yidei Mesha Kvedim, the hands of Moses were very heavy, and he wasn't able to keep them outstretched. So what happened? V'yikhu Evan, they took boulders, large stones, they placed these stones under the hands of Moshe. The scripture says that Aaron and his nephew Hur held the hands of Moshe aloft on each side. The Yiyu Yodav the scripture says, Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were raised in faithful trust to Hashem at Bay Hashemesh until sunset. And it seems pretty clear that by virtue or dint of the hands of Moses that were raised, the children of Israel were able to achieve a military victory that is, seems to be deemed miraculous. So that's the meaning 
of the stone upon which Moshe sat. He didn't actually sit on the stone, but rather his hands were held aloft in prayer and the stones were actually able to buttress his hands as they were held additionally by Aaron and by Chur. Now, what, what did we just learn? I mean, the Gemara was supposed to explain to us the business of the hands of Moshe or the stone of Moshe. That's miraculous. But the Gemara says really precious little here. Rashi says, He couldn't stretch them out all day. Unless, unless they were buttressing, helping, or in some way supporting his hands. And that's the meaning. They took boulders or stones and they placed them under the hands of Moshe and supported by stone, the hands of Moshe remained aloft and that brings about victory, miraculous deliverance for the Jewish people. What's going on here? The Gemara really hasn't explained just about anything. Now, I want to point out that there's even an, an, another issue or a problem over here. I shared with you the words of the first Tosfos on, on the top of this page. Avni Algevish, and the Tosfos asks a question. He says, why is it that we don't recite a bracha over the sight of the dispersion of Sancherev's armies who were massed against Judea and miraculously they were dispersed? They, they had this vision, a virtual reality of them being attacked from all sides, and they literally abandoned camp. And yet, the Gemara doesn't say that it's something that requires a blessing. And we can't say because, well, it wasn't all of the Jewish people, it was just the tribe of Yehuda or Benjamin, because in truth, as Teisvis points out, there are events that transpire for people of great importance in Jewish history, and that is sufficient. So the Teisvis' response, the second answer of Teisvis is that when it comes to miracles that everybody has to recite, it has to be something in which you can see a dent in that place. But when you can't see anything in that place, then you don't recite the bracha. As the Teisvis says, Shuvah yanir l'rabbeni Yehuda, kivan she'ein hanes yadua al-pi because the miracle doesn't have any telltale signs in the place. Whereas, for example, the crossing of the Reed Sea, these are the very waters that split, that divided. This is the very ocean bed that the Jewish people walked upon. These are the stones that, or meteorites that fell from heaven. This is the stone that Og sought to cast on the camp of Israel. Yet when we speak of the areas outside Jerusalem, <laughs> there's no specific area where you can see and say, that's where a miracle happened. There were armies here and they ran away. So we don't have the responsibility or the mandate to recite a bracha. And the story of Amalek, there was a battle here and we were victorious. And to take it further, the Rashbats asks a famous question. He says the miracle was on the battlefield, not in Moses' war room or prayer sanctuary. So what if Moses' hands were held aloft in prayer by two stones? The miracle should have been in the area, the battlefield, where Amalek actually attacked the Jewish people, where the war raged. Why would we recite the bracha when coming to the summit and seeing those stones? 
And if you will say, well, we don't really know where the battlefield was, how do they know where the stones were? If they had a memory of the stones and knew the mountain summit, they could imagine that at the bottom of the mountain, that's where the actual battle took place. So clearly the stones are not the markers for the battlefield, but you're reciting the bracha when you see those stones, and that requires elucidation. It doesn't seem to make sense. The Rashbats wants to explain that the miracle was that Moshe Rabbeinu felt the pain of the Jewish people. He didn't prop his hands up with cushions or pillows, but with stones. And so he was engaged and involved in their pain. And as such, as such, that's the place to recite the bracha, where that's where a miracle happened. So the Maharsha deals with this, with this issue, and he says like this, According to what we explained earlier, that we recite the bracha on the place, in the exact location or geography where a miracle unfolded. So, if you come to the mountain summit or the place where these stones are, that would have to be the place of the miracle. And he says, because, because the miracle or the victory that was miraculously achieved had everything to do with the prayer of Moses and his hands being raised aloft. Still doesn't explain to us why Moshe Rabbeinu had to even raise his hands altogether. We don't have that practice of raising our hands in prayer. We don't hear about Moshe Rabbeinu raising his hands in prayer prior or subsequent to this event, although Moshe does lots of praying. What's really going on here? So the first thing I want to tell you is that I don't know. I don't know. I haven't found any Mepharshim that actually speak about this and explain it. But I do have a suggestion. And the suggestion goes like this. In the famous talk, edited talk, that the Rebbe delivered with regard to the importance of celebrating Hebrew birthdays. Now this talk is primarily culled from the address that the Rebbe delivered on the last day of Pesach of that year in 1988. However, there's also details that are included from things the Rebbe said a little bit earlier Rebbe spoke about this the first time on the 25th day of Adar, and then he elaborated several evenings later, again, about what, what he means. And all of this was incorporated into the edited talk, which is filled with notes, footnotes, and glosses. And the Rebbe suggested that the reason that we should be celebrating our Hebrew birthdays is because, because on a person's birthday, each and every year, we don't only remember, hey, I was born today. So it's more than that, which is earlier in the talk, and I shared this with you last week, that it speaks about the notion of time and space. And just as when you come to a space that vividly reminds you of something that happened, when you arrive at a place is similar to arriving at a time. But the Rebbe says, it's not just a memory. You say to me, it's more so. That on that anniversary, then whatever happened is happening again. Which, which is essentially the same forces at play enabling your successful birth are now at play once again, shielding and protecting you, giving you an added infusion of strength, the ability to overcome a challenge. And 
to continue to live. That's how the Rebbe sees the notion of a birthday. And the Rebbe directs us to something very interesting, which is brought down in the Sefer, one of the Sfarim that the Chidor writes. This is called Lev David in the 29th chapter. The Chidor quotes the Ramaz, Rabbeinu Moshe Zukato, in a book called Tikkun Shavivim. And he says that the Ramaz stated that the reason we say on Purim, in the Megillah, it says that on these days, we are reminded, and we act upon them. So on a literal level, it means we remember the miracle that happened on Purim, and we act on it by listening to the Megillah, by dispensing tzedakah to those who are needy, by giving gifts of food and having a festive meal. But the Ramaz goes further and he says, When those of us terrestrially alive bring to mind the notion of this miracle, something happens on high and he says, this is an ongoing thing. Now the Chida sets out to explain the meaning of these words. And he says, we see in the verbiage, the syntax of the blessing that our sages ordained for Hanukkah and Purim, we say, in those days, at this time. And the Chidah explains it this way, in those days, Hashem magnified His beneficence to us, giving us a shefa of Yeshua of Arachamim, providing us with an abundance of salvation of Hashem's mercy and compassion. And that divine force, the force of God's compassion, the spiritual force of God's beneficence caused a miracle to unfold. And he says, at this time, on the anniversary, what we see happening here is a stirring of the same spiritual forces that unleashed miracles and wonders. The notion of the divine compassions being stirred necessarily bring about a wondrous transformation in the terrestrial realm, in our world. And that is the meaning of what Rabbeinu Zukato says when he says that it's in the day that the miracle happens. And the Rebbe says that if you want to really understand what's going on here, and you want to find an actual source for all this, it's simple. It's actually in the Gemara, the Jerusalem Talmud, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, the third chapter, the eighth halacha. And amazingly, it's talking about the very episode referenced here in our Gemara. The Mishnah there says, Kasha Yorim Moshe, Yode when Moshe raised his hands, the Govar Yisrael, the verse says, then the armies of the Israelites surged ahead and gained power. They overpowered their enemies. Is it the hands of Moses that are able to bring about deeds of valor or victory in war or weaken? So the Mishnah says, As long as the hands of Moshe were raised on high, it caused the soldiers to raise their eyes heavenward. 
and it caused them to humble their hearts before God, and that's why they were successful. That's what the Mishnah says. The Jerusalem Talmud tells us, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi Omar, the sage, Rabbi Yeshua, the son of Levi, said, Amalek kushfan hoya. Amalek was a practitioner of alien forms of spirituality, black magic, essentially. As uh, the Korban Ha'eda commentary says, Mechashef This is a nation that dabbled in the occult. And they were aware, keenly aware of spiritual forces. And therefore, The people that they sent to go up against Israel were people who were there on the day of their luck or good fortune. And what does that mean? Says the Yisrael, the people that they set up to go to battle with against the Israelites. It was the people who were celebrating their birthdays on that day. Lomar, as if to say, Lo Adam Nizak Molanto. Not easy to harm somebody on the day of his birth date. Sha'oz Hamazel, because then the spiritual force, which is called a mazel, and that's the spiritual force that's connected to a particular hour, is Sholet. It has dominion Biyomahu. So, in other words, your mazel or your spiritual force that is connected to the time in which you were born. The time that you were born is the convention, the point of, if you will, diffusion of divine energy into this world. And that point of that reference in time through which Almighty God allowed certain things to happen, they came through the frame of that time. They came by the spirit of its force, its spiritual force. And, and when the anniversary of your birth date comes along, your mazel, the frame of time that was activated, that was animating the divine beneficence that allowed things to happen in the world, including your birth, on your birthday, that mazel rises and shines brightly. And the things that it affected at that point in history are essentially being reaffected. So birth, first and foremost, means you didn't die on the way out. You actually survived being in the narrow straits of the birthing canal. It's the most dangerous moment in a person's life, the moment before they're born. Not everybody makes it out alive. You never take a breath before you come out of the womb. You're in water, so to speak, in liquid, in the amniotic fluid. And then when you come out, you have to get kick-started. You know, the proverbial bang on the bum to give the baby and the baby begins to cry and all of a sudden the lungs come to life and a person's alive? That's a big deal. So on the day of your birth date, you are uniquely empowered to overcome challenges. And if it's somebody's birth date, not a good idea to pick a fight with him. We're talking here, of course, about the Hebrew birth date. And he was very aware of this, Amalek. And so they sent up the people who were celebrating their birthdays on that day. Why? so that they might have the added force of spirit. Amalek knew that he's doing battle with the Jewish people. He knew that the Jewish people, that the Israelite nation did not leave Mitzrayim by the spirit of force. It's not as if they declared war on the day's superpower. They were a motley crew of slaves, 
of people who had no training in military maneuvers. It was all by a miracle. And so, it was the force of spirit that took them out of Mitzrayim. So Amalek now is attacking them at a time when everybody is terrified of the Israelite nation. So they sent the people who would have the force of spirit with them. The people whose mazel was very strong. Amalek was a large nation. And it selected the soldiers born on that day and sent them into battle. So what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing? Ma'asa Moshe. Moshe became aware of this. Irviv esamazolus. He confused, he confused the proverbial mazalot, those different frames of time. And the mazalot have much to do with the movement of the heavenly bodies and the orbs of heavenly bodies as they move, speeding through space, and that has something to do with the effects of time, as we know that the movement of the heavenly bodies is what causes aging, or the effects of time to unfold in our terrestrial existence. And so Moshe Rabbeinu, by doing so, was able to save the Jewish people. And that's the meaning of the Pasuk, which is found in the, amongst the prophecies of Chavakuk, that Chavakuk says, Shemesh Yereach Amad Zvula, that, the, that God will cause the sun and moon to proverbially stand still in its abode, in its track or orbit, so that amazing things, miracles can happen. And the Gemara seems to understand this prophecy of Chavakuk as back to the future, not really only about futuristically speaking, but what happened in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu raising his hands is able to somehow manipulate the forces, the heavenly forces that are at play right now aiding and assisting the people whose birthday it would have been. Where was Moshe Rabbeinu doing this? He was doing this on the mountain summit. By virtue of what was he doing this? By virtue of the stones. Because we are told that it was by Moshe Rabbeinu feeling the pain of the Jewish people, not sitting in the lap of luxury on cushions or on a sofa, but sitting in the rocks and having his hands held up by the rocks, that Moshe Rabbeinu, through his empathy, through his ability to feel the challenge and the pain that the soldiers were experiencing at that moment, was able to achieve that which he achieved in being Ma'arvev Hamazolis. In other words, what's going on here is a major event of epic proportion. Now, the Rebbe in this, in this Sikha also notes that there's a famous mimer from the Friedrich Rebbe that's found in the Maimarim of Tavshin Dalad, where the Friedrich Rebbe says that even in Halacha we have proof of this. It's a discussion about wine turning to vinegar. And it says there are certain periods or points along the year when we have to check to see if the wine hasn't changed. And one of them is when the grapes went from being blossoms to the emergence of a bulb or a grape. And that's because at this time of the year when there was a change for the original vine, there would be a change for that which comes from the vine, namely the grapes or the wine now. At any rate, the Rebbe says, we see this with the Yom Huledet, the birth date of the first human beings, Adam and Chava. When does God renew His covenant with humanity? When does God give a new year of life? 
when do we have a powerful day in which we can ask Hashem for all we need and for the betterment of humanity? Rosh Hashanah. The Rebbe later notes that this notion of the mazalot is talked about in the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. In the Gemara there on page 156 talks about the hour in which you're born and how there are seven mazalot, which are repeated thrice every 24 hours. Of course, that would only give you 21, but then there are three which are repeated yet a fourth time. And there's an entire calculation that's found there in the Gemara and a way for you to figure out which mazal you were born in. This has to do with planetary orbits. And actually, there's a halacha which we observe till this very day. It's brought down in the Shulchan Aruch, in Eurachayim, the part of Shulchan Aruch that speaks about everyday life, it governs the laws of Shabbat. In chapter 271, even in the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, we talk about this notion of not reciting Kiddush on Friday night in Mazel Maidim, in the Mazel that is associated or identified with the Red Planet. Because red wine and the Red Planet can be a noxious mix, and Kiddush made during that time could just possibly bring about negative energy. And there's a Gemara, and this is a halacha that says that a person born at that time has a predisposition to spilling blood, and therefore they should become a mohel, or a surgeon, a doctor, or maybe a shochet who spills some blood in a healthy fashion, rather than, God forbid, having a predisposition to cause the spilling of blood in, God forbid, a very negative way. So our mazel doesn't mean we lose the freedom of choice, but it means we're under a certain influence. We're always responsible for the things we choose to do, always. Yet, sometimes we find ourselves uniquely empowered, buoyed by a certain force or a certain spirit. And that's what we're talking about here with this business of a mazel. And the Rebbe says an amazing thing. He says that at that time, when Amalek went into battle, Moshe Rabbeinu did not stop the sun and the moon. He didn't stop the heavenly orbs, per se. The Rebbe says, Moshe Rabbeinu stopped the mazel as it would have helped those particular Amalekite soldiers. Pa'ulas Moshe, and I'm reading to you from footnote 44 here in the Sikha, it's on page 401. Pa'ulas Moshe Although we have no indication of any kind of heavenly orb that was interrupted. We do have stories like that. Gimel Tammuz, of course, is the day that Yehoshua has the sun stand still. So there is a serious interruption of heavenly orbs which necessarily impedes Mazalot. However, here we have no indication of anything like that changing. And that's because... Moshe Rabbeinu was not stopping the heavenly orbs or the function of astrological mazalot, but rather its influence on that particular Amalekite. The Rebbe goes on to say in the, in the, in the, in the, in the what's called Shulia Hagilian, in, the, in a, little, a note on the bottom, a gloss, he says, and on that day, it was only during the hours of this particular Amalekite where Moshe Rabbeinu was impeding the transmission. Think of it as a satellite, as giving off a signal, and Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't knock out the satellite, but stops this particular device from receiving the influence, the transmission. 
In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu stopped the transmission, not from its source, but at the site of its being downloaded. He disabled the Amalekite from connecting to that force, which could have empowered him to be in a better position to defeat the Jewish people. And the Rebbe says furthermore, it was only b'mokim mesuyim, it was only in this place, in that portion of the area of the Sinai Desert called Rafidim. Now in view of everything the Rebbe says here, it actually starts to make sense that we would recite the bracha when seeing the stones. I mean, that's maybe the meaning of what Rashbats means when he says that it was the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu who was feeling the pain of the Jewish people as his hands were buttressed or supported by the stone. And, and, and so that's what's the emphasis of the stone. But like the Marsha says, that Mekoyim Hanes, the place of miracle, the boiler room, if you will, that was powering everything, was up on the mountain, not on the ground. I found it really interesting. I, I, I discovered that there's a discussion from one of the Mepharshim. His name is, uh, wrote a sefer called Emek She'ela. And he says that L'cha'ira, the bracha, is for the miracle. So if the bracha is for the miracle, the miracle wasn't, a, wasn't an open miracle. It was a battle. A battle is not an open miracle. A sea splitting is an open miracle. <laughs> Meteorites raining from heaven with direct precision, that's an open miracle. A battle, a winning of a battle, how is that an open miracle? And he says it actually, it isn't recited over the battlefield. He says that's the point. We see we don't, we recite the bracha over the stones of Moshe Rabbeinu's praying. Because, because it was... And he says something strange. He says, how could Moses have kept his hands raised all day? No human being can do that. I found that strange. How did Moses uh, not eat or sleep for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, you're talking about a person who did greater miracles than keep his hands up in the air. But I think the point, as we said, is the notion of Moshe Rabbeinu being able to disturb Mazalot and in doing so, to stop the Amalekite from receiving the download he needs. This was actually where all the action was happening, that's where the bracha is necessary. At any rate, that, um, that's how I understand this Gemara. I, I don't really see any other way to explain it. And in, in view of everything we've learned, it makes a lot of sense that seeing those stones would necessarily require a bracha on our part. For here, Moshe Rabbeinu created a cosmic event in a very, very targeted and precise way that saved us as a nation as we were en route to Har Sinai. And this battle could have very badly demoralized us. It could have really inhibited the trajectory of our growth and our development as a nation. And Moshe Rabbeinu was able to single-handedly turn the tide of that war and change the destiny of our nation. The Gemara now goes further and says, let's talk about the next location of something remarkable that requires a bracha. So the next thing was, the ishta light, the wife of light, the wife of light. Who's she? I mean, like, her name was Idis, but what do you mean we make a bracha over her? What is going on over here? So the Gemara explains, shenemar, for it is written in the scripture, and this is found in Genesis 19, in verse 26 it says, 
Vatabet ishte ma'achayrov, and she looked back, Vatihi nitziv melach. And she turned into a pillar of salt. So the Gemara doesn't really explain that at all, but the Gemara is going to come back to this. <laughs> right now, all the Gemara says is, Lot's wife? The Gemara says, yeah, it's a verse. She turned into a pillar of salt. So you see that pillar of salt, and you have to recite a bracha. The bracha is, Baruch Sha'asanes. Now it's interesting that the Rambam does not include this mention in his halachic restatement of these laws. In the 10th chapter of, of, uh, of Laws of Brachot, where the Rambam goes through seeing all these things, he doesn't mention Ishtosholot. And there is an opinion which is found in the Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer that says that the wife of Lot melted. She was salt. When the waters rushed in, she melted into the sea, sea, the sea of salt. It's known as Yam HaMelech. The world calls it the dead salt. We call it the sea salt. Nothing is dead for us. In fact, it was Jewish people who figured out you can make all kinds of beauty products and cosmetics. You can make a lot of money off sea salt. It's not dead. It's a source of health. It's a source of life. Anyway, be that as it may, the, the point, as Rashi mentions, is that there was earthquakes in the area afterwards and there was a breaking of the tectonic plates. Waters rushed in and the area where Sodom once was became a body of water that has a very high content of sodium and salt. The thing is, though, that other sages maintain that, no, 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 Lot's wife is still there. The Bukhar Shor says so. And in the Seder Hadorot, it's really odd. I, I, I actually looked up it up in the Seder Hadorot. He says that there's this, this statue of salt, this pillar of salt that comes out of the ground. And he says that the, the locals bring their, their goats and they lick the salt and it ends up going down to a stump and, and night falls. But the next day, the salt kind of rises out of the ground again. And he says there's this phenomenon of this, the salt that's being consumed, it, it collapses, like melts or, or, or gets eaten, and then the salt keeps, there's a constant profusion of salt coming up from the ground. I, I don't know. So the Radal wants to suggest that the Rambam follows the girsa of the Pirkei de Belezer, and that's why he doesn't include the wife of Lot. In other words, that would be a different, a divergent opinion from our Gemara. But as stated, other Rishonim simply state that the Gemara is so, and Sayyid Hadiris maintains he saw it with his own eyes. I no reason to assume that he didn't see it. The fact that we may not see it today, things could have changed over the last uh, thousand years, but he says he knows where this was, and he actually saw it with his own eyes. But anyway, we'll get back to that in a moment. The Gemara now moves forward from the wife of Lot, now that we've sourced it. First thing the Gemara is going to do is going to source it. The Gemara will come back and analyze this later. Interestingly, the Gemara does not come back to analyze the story of Moshe Rabbeinu's hands at all. That's I shared with you an analysis from the Gemara of the Yerushalmi, as as I understand it, as per the illumination of the Rebbe Sicha on this. But the Gemara does not actually revisit it or talk about it at all. The Gemara, however, is going to mention two other instances, and the Gemara will come back to revisit both of these. The last incident that we discussed was the notion of Chomat Yericho Shenivla, the walls of Jericho that sunk into the ground. Dichsiv, for it is written, and here the Gemara now is going to quote the verses, Vatipol HaChomat Tachteha, the walls collapsed from beneath. We're going to come back to this and analyze it, what exactly happened there, 
uh, as you might know, in, in the scripture, there's a very interesting story that's told in the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua, of the Jewish people, led by Joshua, going, making this parade around the city and then sounding shofarot and doing that for six days in a row. And on the seventh day, they're going with the Aron Habrit, with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, this is the first major city that they're about to take. And after going around seven times, the shofarot are sounded seven times and along with the shofar blasts, comes a seismic event and the walls of Jericho collapse. And that's the miracle we're talking about here. Now we know where Jericho is and archaeology has confirmed that there were walls that were as high as they were thick. And they found actually storehouses filled with grain, which lends credibility to the story because the defenders of the city had ample provisions there's even a shard of pottery that says the name Yabon, which is the king of Jericho, who was identified as the king of Jericho there. At any rate, the Gemara now comes back. Before we talk about Jericho and its walls, the Gemara will discuss the wife of Lot and the blessing that has to be recited. Bishlema, the Gemara says, I can be at peace. I can understand. The other events, Kulu, Nisa, they all speak of miracles. Ela ishta shalot, but the wife of Lot, paranutahu. That refers not to a miracle, but to misfortune. I mean, Lot's wife was tragically turned into a pillar of salt. No happy ending there. So how do you understand that? What do you see? You see Lot's wife? who was destroyed, and you say, yippee, God did a miracle here, and turned a wicked woman into a pillar of salt. This is supposed to be acts of deliverance and salvation, not paranut, not misfortune. True, she wasn't a particularly righteous woman, and she didn't like Lot's ideas of hospitality, generosity, and kindness, but then again, Lot wasn't so righteous himself. So what's going on here? So the Gemara says something very interesting. We kind of have to fill in the missing blanks here. With regard to Lot's wife, Ella, with regard to Lot's wife, Paranutahu is indeed, indeed something which is of misfortune. And Huda Omar Baruch Dayan Ho'emet. That's where you're supposed to say, blessed is the true judge. That is the blessing, incidentally, we recite until this very day over sad, bad news. Tidings of a passing. We say, Baruch Dayan Emet. So the Gemara says, that's not what we were told. We weren't, we weren't told you make a blessing and then we're figuring it out which blessing it is. The Gemara said, these are the people or these are the events that require us to express our gratitude to Hashem. Remember, we're learning appreciation here. We're nurturing an attitude of gratitude. We're not accepting upon ourselves negativity. The Gemara talks about that later. The Mishnah talked about that. You remember, we're going to come back to it. The notion of thanking Hashem in every situation and circumstance. But first and foremost, we were talking about seeing miraculous 
the places of miraculous episodes and expressing our gratitude, our appreciation. Shevach v'hidoya, praise and thanks to Hashem. So the Gemara says, Tony, we learned actually in Abraisa. And this is how we should understand what's being said here. We recite a bracha, Alot va'al ishto. For Lot and his wife, Mevorchim Shtayim. There are two blessings made. Al ishto Omer Baruch Dayano Amet. When you see that pillar of salt, you recite Baruch Dayan Amet. Va'alot, and then Lot you say Baruch Zocher et Tzadikim. Blessed is God who remembers the righteous, which seems to indicate that Lot is righteous. But if you take a look further in the Gemara, the Gemara says, Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan said that means, even at the time of divine anger, he remembers the righteous. He remembered Avram. Lot was saved by dint of his relationship to Avram, not by virtue of his own righteousness. Shanemer, as it's written, at the time when Hashem destroyed the cities of the plain, Hashem remembered Father Abraham. And Lot was spirited out of the destruction. Now, one of the questions which is asked here is that Lot's wife wasn't Jewish. So this whole business of Baruch Dayan Emet, we recite for us, it's part of our Jewish experience. Why do we have a relationship with Lot's wife? Why is it something we should even recite a bracha over? So the Chafetz Chaim in Sharat Zion suggests that that's because the merit of Avraham was not able to shield her. That's what gives us pain. Because this is really about Abraham. It's not about Lot. Lot was not righteous per se in and of himself. There was some righteousness encoded into his soul. Eventually that filters through his daughters into the nations they found. Rotten nations, corrupt nations. But with a spark of holiness that eventually gets redeemed through Ruth, who comes from Moab, and through Naamah, who comes from Ammon. And these are the remarkable women. Both of them are the carriers of seed that results eventually in the progeny, the royal line of lineage of David and Shlomo, from which the Mashiach will emerge in Merz Hashem. So, so there is a certain extraordinarily holy spark that resided within the personage of Lot and his daughters, and, and that was saved. But it was all about Avram. It was the virtue the, but the, the, of Avram Avinu that served to shield here. And so the Sharetzian says, when we see that Avram's merit couldn't shield the wife of Lot, that brings us sadness. And when we see that Lot could be saved, we say, Baruch Zocher Tzadikim. Blessed is God who remembers Tzadikim. And the Gemara's emphasis here is in a time of divine anger. Because in a time of divine fury and angst, the fact that there should be a precision-driven salvation right in the midst of this inferno is considered to be an exceptionally unique expression of this idea of Hashem remembering tzaddikim. And that's why Abrach has recited. Now, there's a, a bit of a discussion amongst the commentaries whether or not we're talking about two locations, like maybe seeing the grave of Lot or the pillar of salt or not. The Rush is pretty clear about this. He says, when you see that pillar, 
you remember both Lot and his wife. And you can make Diana Emet for Lot's wife and Baruch Zocherat Tzadikim for the salvation of Lot. The riff seems to indicate otherwise, although many maintain that despite the, the notion that seems the riff talks about disparate locations or geographies, the reality would be that in today's day and age, nobody knows where the grave of Lot is. And so it isn't a place where people visit and it isn't a place that could cause one to stop and think. But when we see the pillar of salt, that was once Lot's wife, we know Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt and that means Lot is saved. And so it's, again, coming in contact with a particular geography that serves to stimulate our memory endorphins. It seems to get our mind working. And once our juices get going, then we remember what happened. And when we remember what happened, albeit in antiquity, but nonetheless, this is a part of the fabric of us as a nation. It's part of the fabric of who we are as a people because the history necessarily filters down to us and therefore it has to become part of the fabric of our Yiddishkeit, of the way we in today's day and age, in modern times, can look back at history and be inspired by it. And by expressing our thanks and appreciation to Hashem because of a story that happened, because of salvation delivered, it enables us to nurture the proper attitude of gratitude that we need. And that, of course, enables us to become a keli, a recipient for divine largesse and God's future kindnesses. So this is, this is what it's about. And therefore, it necessarily has a lot to do with the Jewish people. It's only that this site, this spot, for one reason or another, causes a memory event to be triggered. You see the spot? You know what it represents? You talk about something, say thank you. Acknowledge your appreciation to Hashem. The Gemara now continues and goes back to the story of the walls that sank. Well, it doesn't really say the walls sank. It says the walls collapsed. So the Gemara says, we need to go back and revisit the thing we just talked about. The Gemara says, how could the Brisa tell us that the walls of Yericho sank into the ground? Did the walls of Jericho sink into the ground? They fell, as it is written. And here we do, this is a direct quote from the Psukim in the book of Yoshua, from the sixth chapter. When the nation heard the sounds generated from the shofar, the entirety of the nation responded with large shofar blasts, and the wall Is fallen, not sunken. Why do we use a language in our Gemara which is different from the words of the Scripture? So the Gemara says, this is because here we're actually describing what happened. And when we describe what happened, the only adequate description is the notion of sinking. Why? Well, the Gemara says, because... Kivan, 
because the walls that we are speaking of, the puse veruma ki hadodininu, the height and the diameter or thickness of these walls was actually equal. These were almost impossible, impenetrable walls because they were as thick as they were high. If they were 20 feet high, they were 20 feet thick. Enormous walls. That's why the Canaanites were so sure that the Israelites could never conquer the city of Yericho. It was the titanic of cities. It could never sink. And yet, so because its diameter and height were equal, Mishum Hachi Ivla Belui. That's why we speak of it as having sunk. And the point is this. Realistically, when something is tall but not very thick, it can collapse. You have a tall wall, the wall collapses. When you have a wall whose diameter is equal to its height, how does it collapse? Turn on its side, you still get the same pile of rubble. You're still going to have the same issue. How would you get through that wall? Even if the wall proverbially collapsed, you'd still have the same amount of stone fortification to overcome. So realistically, the crumbling of the wall necessarily had to happen in effect through the concept of what we would call sinking into the ground. And because in the end, it is the walls that sink into the ground that enabled the nation of Israel to, so to speak, transcend those walls, to enter the city of Yericho and to do battle with its defenders who were not ready for battle. Because in a moment's notice, the walls which provided them with, in their minds, the greatest security protection one could possibly hope for, suddenly disappeared. So Israelite troops are primed for war. The Jer Jericho's defenders are caught totally unaware and by surprise, and Israel quickly overpowers the city. And this becomes the beginning of the conquest that Yehoshua prosecutes against the Canaanites as Am Yisrael comes home to its eternal homeland, ultimately establishing the first Jewish commonwealth in, in the geography that had been promised to Avraham and to the nation that he founded. And that, my dear friends, is the conclusion of our analysis of specific wondrous geographies. You can call this the original seven wonders of the world, or these are seven wonders for us as members of Am Yisrael. It is said that these locations were once known widely and places that people would visit in order to recite a bracha because seeing a place in which a miracle happened necessarily should call forth that kind of appreciation. And I want to conclude with this. Although, although the notion of these miracles, as the Teisvis says, as I pointed out, would have to be connected to an actual miracle that unfounded in this particular geography. This is the case when we speak of national miracles. But when we speak about an individual, then an individual will always recite Baruch Sha'asa Neis B'Mokem Thank Hashem for doing a miracle for me in this place, even if it's a place in which there was no apparent event that took place in the terrain. God forbid you could have been in a car accident from which you emerged, emerged unscathed. 
when you drive by that patch of road, if you haven't been there in 30 days, that's cause to recite a bracha. You say, Baruch And certainly, if it's something that you deem to be Hashem's salvation or saving hand, it's appropriate for you to do that. If you're not sure, you simply don't recite Shem or Malchus. I heard the story recently from one of the Rebbe's longtime secretaries, Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky, who was with the Rebbe at the Ohel, and he was trying to light a propane heater because it was freezing cold, and the Rebbe was there all day davening, and there was some kind of mishap. The gas was on, he wasn't aware, and it ended up blowing up in his face. And he literally, his beard went on fire, his coat was on fire, and he was rolling on the ground near the Ohel. And this is a whole incredible story, but the bottom line is the Rebbe told him blessed him that there should be no reshim, and he has no scars on his face. He's a very handsome man, and his face is all clear. And the Rebbe said to him that when he, went, when he would be at the Ohel next, he should say the words, Baruch Sha'asalim Hazeh. And so we see that this, that diff- the distinction of the Teisvis carries through, even if there's nothing specific about the actual geography, even if nothing actually happened per se in this terrain, when you have a miracle, and when you are reminded of it, because you return to that spot or because you get back to that day. It's appropriate for you to utilize that, that moment, that's that, 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 that spot, so that it becomes a launching pad for you to express appreciation to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and thank Him for the miracles that you were able to benefit from. In closing, all of this is a story of the past. However, we now stand at the cusp of a transformation, a universal change, a time in which it says, Ki mitzrayim, just as in the days when we left Mitzrayim, Hashem promised, niflois, I will show you miracles as we stand in this year of Tavshim Pe'alaf. We hope and we pray for the fulfillment of the Rebbe's words that seem to indicate that Pe'alaf could stand for and we hope to see wonders and miracles unfolding very, very soon. And together, we'll be able to thank Hashem for His salvation. And that hopefully culminates with the coming of Mashiach Bimheira. Will be Amen. Thanks so much for joining today.